King David committed adultery. And then to conceal his adultery, he committed murder. But one day, as David was holding court, in walked Nathan the prophet. And Nathan spoke to King David and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his food and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock to prepare for the guest. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the traveler. Now David, hearing this, was outraged by this terrible injustice that the rich man had perpetrated. And David said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. But Nathan said to David, you are the man. And Nathan went on to explain that not that David had actually stolen a little lamb from a farmer, but David was like the figure in this story because David was rich. And yet being dissatisfied with all that he had, David went and deprived a poorer man of everything he had, his beloved wife and even his life. And seeing this parallel, David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Now what Nathan does is he tells a parable, a simple, straightforward story that has a meaning, another meaning beyond the literal meaning of the of the story, which is not immediately obvious. But when that second meaning is explained, it shows that the story has revealed a profound truth because something in the story is similar to or illustrates this profound truth. And I begin with this today because the most famous person in history who taught using parables was Jesus. And this morning, we're going to begin to look at some of the parables of Jesus as we turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, turn there with me. I've got some Bibles in the seat backs if you need them. We spent most of last year in the gospel of Matthew, and then around the end of the year, we decided to take a long break from this series. But today, we're going to pick it up again. And where we pick up is the start of the third major sermon that Jesus gives in this book, which consists of many parables. And today we're just going to look at the first of them in Matthew 13, verses 1 to 23. And today we're going to see three things. First, Jesus tells a parable. Second, we'll see why Jesus taught using parables. And third, we'll ask, what does Jesus' parable mean generally and what does it mean for us? So let's start with our first point in which Jesus tells a parable. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. What same day? Well, let's remind ourselves for a moment what has happened up to this point in Matthew's gospel. Beginning in chapter 4, Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee. And his ministry has been characterized by a few things. We've seen Jesus preaching, chapters 4 through 7. In chapters 4, 8, and 9, we've seen Jesus call disciples. And in those same chapters, we have seen Jesus perform some really amazing miracles. The miracles that the Old Testament said the Messiah would perform. 
Miracles that shows that showed that Jesus had total authority over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. And then after demonstrating all of this in chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to evangelize every part of Galilee. But despite all that Jesus has done, in chapters 11 and 12, he is rejected. He is rejected by the cities and the crowds of people that he has been ministering to. He is rejected by the religious leaders who should have recognized him. He's even written off by his own family as being insane. And chapter 13 starts right after Jesus has endured some particularly heartbreaking rejection. And Jesus walks out of the house where these incidents took place, and he walks down to the Sea of Galilee alone, and he sits. But he isn't alone for very long. Verse 2, and great crowds gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Here again come the crowds. Now, they're not willing to listen to Jesus, but they sure want access to his miraculous power. And they surround Jesus and press upon him so much so that people have to bring a boat for Jesus to get into so that he isn't crushed by these crowds. So I want you to picture it. Jesus is in a boat just offshore, and there's this huge throng of people pressing against the, uh, the beach right on the shoreline. And now Jesus begins to speak to them. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables. Jesus teaches the crowd, but something is now different about Jesus' teaching. When Jesus preached before the crowds in the past, like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught in a very straightforward way. Now, what he said was very challenging, but Jesus wasn't hiding the ball from the crowds. He was speaking to them very plainly. But now, as Jesus speaks to the crowds, he speaks in parables. And we find the first parable in verse 3. A sower went out to sow. This story is drawn from the world of agriculture, which probably isn't very familiar to most of us, but it would have been very familiar to the agrarian people of Galilee. And the main character in Jesus' story is a sower. This is a farmer who's going to sow some seed in his fields, which he's hoping is going to, to grow into grain which he's going to be able to use to feed his family or to sell to make some money. And we read about him sowing beginning in verse 4. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So as the farmer walked along the paths that separated his fields, he would have reached into his bag over his shoulder and pulled out some seed to throw. And as he did this, some of the seed would have fallen along the pathway. And that seed would be wasted because nothing could grow on the roads. Indeed, Jesus tells us that this seed is lost because the birds of the air would be able to pick out the grains. They would be able to see them from far away to see the seed, and they would swoop down and eat it. That would be the end of the seed. But Jesus continues, verse 5. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Galilee is a very rocky area, and in Galilee there are areas which on the surface would look like good ground for planting, but which actually weren't. 
because the soil was, was there only in a very shallow layer above hard, impenetrable rock. And seed planted in this shallow soil would fare poorly because as it sprouts, it's not going to be able to develop roots. It's going to hit the rock. And so what will happen is that shallow root will overheat and seeds sprout in warmer conditions. The seed sprouts quickly, but it doesn't have anywhere to go underneath the ground. It can't develop roots. It's not going to be able to get what it needs to survive when difficult conditions arise. And Jesus says, eventually the sun will come out and the plant will be finished. It will wither and die. Verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Here the seed finds some fertile ground, but there's a problem. There are already other plants in that ground, the thorn bushes. And the thorn bushes are able to monopolize the sun and the nutrients and the moisture in the soil. The seed cannot outcompete the thorns. And so being deprived of what it needs, it dies. You would have to admit that so far this is a pretty grim story. The seed keeps meeting a bad end. But now Jesus concludes the parable in a totally different direction. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The seed that lands on the good ground produces abundantly. And the numbers that Jesus uses to describe this abundance would be numbers that were on the high end of a very productive crop of grain. So in the end, the farmer gets a, a very good outcome. Jesus concludes, verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus finishes the story, and he tells the crowd, there's something you should glean from this, but he doesn't tell them what it is. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this passage if we spent any time in churches over the years. We know how Jesus is going to explain this to the disciples. But I want you to imagine 2,000 years ago being in this crowd. Jesus basically tells this story and he says, you guys figure it out. You would be totally baffled. Okay, I heard the story. What does it mean? What am I supposed to glean from this? It had to be what the audience was thinking. And we know that because it's what the disciples were thinking. And that's what we see now as we come to our second point, in which we ask, why did Jesus teach in parables? Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them, to the crowd, in parables? Now, Mark 4 tells us this question was put to Jesus when he was alone. So this conversation actually happened at some point later in the day, after Jesus finished presenting all of his parables to the crowds. But Matthew presents this conversation to us here at the start of Jesus' sermon to help us understand what we're reading. If Matthew didn't move this conversation forward and present it to us here, we would wind up just reading a bunch of uninterpreted parables, and we would be as confused as the crowds. But by bringing this conversation up, Matthew ensures that we are able to understand from the outset what Jesus is doing throughout this chapter. So the disciples say to Jesus, why are you teaching the crowds in parables? Verse 11, and Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Jesus says there's a fundamental difference between his disciples and the crowds. Jesus' disciples possess a spiritual understanding that the crowds do not possess, an understanding of what Jesus calls 
the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to talk about that phrase more in a few minutes. But right now, let's just say the disciples grasped something the crowds didn't. Where did their understanding come from? Were they just smarter than the crowds? Did they figure it all out? No. Jesus says their understanding had been given to them. The verb is in the passive voice. Someone else has supplied this understanding to the disciples. It did not come from them. And who has given this to the disciples? Well, we don't have to guess. Slightly more than one chapter earlier, Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty five: I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Or again, in, in chapter 16, Jesus will say to Peter after Peter confesses him as the Christ, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, we need to know today, the source of all true spiritual insight is God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if the disciples have any spiritual understanding, it's because God has graciously given it to them. And that's true for us today, too. If we know Christ through the gospel, that isn't because we're so great or that we're so smart. That is because of the gracious, efficacious work of God alone. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that at this point in the story, Jesus' disciples had a comprehensive understanding of every point of Christian theology. Far from it. But at this point, they do understand at least some truth. They understood that they should repent and follow Jesus, which is more than the crowds understood. And the reason for their right response to the gospel was the gracious work of God. So what Jesus is doing here is he's picking up a theme that we see throughout the whole New Testament and throughout this book, which is that God is supremely sovereign over salvation and every matter of human spiritual understanding. And Jesus says that God has given the disciples an insight that he has not given to the crowds. But how does that answer the disciples' question? The disciples want to know why Jesus is teaching in parables, and instead Jesus says, well, there's a difference between you and the crowds. What's the connection? I think it's this. Jesus doesn't just have one purpose in teaching in parables. He has two. He has one purpose for his disciples and another purpose for the crowds. And Jesus now tells us what these two purposes are in verse 12. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. A lot of people in our society have this idea that fairness requires a great leveling, that those who have much should lose what they have, and that those who do not have much should gain a lot more. What Jesus says here is basically the opposite of that. Although Jesus is not talking about material wealth, Jesus is talking about spiritual insight. And what Jesus says is this, those who understand who God is and what God is doing, they will receive more spiritual insight and more growth. But those who do not know who God is, who do not follow Jesus, they will lose everything, including whatever meager spiritual insight they had to begin with. Now what this verse does is it reveals the twin purposes behind Jesus' parables. 
Jesus taught in parables to educate his disciples who had been given spiritual insight and Jesus taught in parables as a judgment upon the crowds who lacked spiritual insight to deprive them of whatever insight they had. That might shock you. Why would Jesus deliberately do something that would cause large numbers of people to lose their spiritual insight? Doesn't 2 Peter 3 say, The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Wouldn't obscuring the truth from the crowds accomplish the exact opposite of that? Wouldn't it bar them from repentance? Wouldn't it push them closer to eternal doom? Yes. And in fact, that's what Jesus says explicitly as we read the next verse, verse 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus says he speaks in these obscure parables precisely because the crowds don't understand. Because they are hard-hearted and unbelieving and not listening and not perceiving, Jesus gives them the truth in a way that's even more unclear to them. In fact, in Mark 4, Jesus says this to the disciples. Listen to this. Mark 4, 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, with the purpose of, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus explicitly says he is speaking to the crowds with the intention that they should not perceive, that they should not understand, so that they will be condemned. That is shocking. How can this be the will of Christ? Well, Jesus explains, and he does so by pointing to the Old Testament. Verse 14, he says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. We might, be understand, uh, we might be astonished by what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 13. But the truth is what Jesus says here is not unique in the Bible. This is an idea that appears many times. That God sometimes confirms people in judgment. Jesus here quotes from Isaiah 6, that glorious chapter where God reveals his holiness to the prophet. And God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And what God basically says to Isaiah is this, I will send you, but here's what your ministry is going to accomplish. It isn't going to be revival and repentance. What's going to happen is you're going to preach, and people are going to reject what you say, and that's my point, so that I can bring the judgment on them that they deserve. Sometimes the will of God is to bring judgment. And sometimes God uses his messengers and his word as the means of solidifying the inevitability of that judgment. And that's what Jesus says his parables are designed to do to the crowds. But why? Isn't God gracious and compassionate and merciful? Doesn't God desire everyone to come to repentance? He does. In Isaiah 6, the people that God sends Isaiah to confirm in judgment 
are people that have already had multiple opportunities to repent. They are people who knew God's word and who ignored what they knew and who hardened their hearts against God and continued in evil. And eventually God's patience towards them was exhausted and so he foreclosed the possibility of their repentance. He said, fine, it's judgment for you. And that's what's happening in Matthew 13. The crowds here are not a bunch of innocent bystanders who are being unjustly deprived of an opportunity to be saved. On the contrary, throughout the first half of this book, God has reached out to these people again and again in a unique and gracious way through the ministry of Jesus. These people heard Jesus preach over and over. They had seen Jesus perform astonishing miracles. Remember, they all live in small towns. Many of them would have been directly impacted by those miracles. And yet despite experiencing and seeing and hearing the truth in an incontrovertible way again and again and again that Jesus Christ is Lord, Matthew eleven twenty says, they did not repent. They hardened their hearts against God's gracious offer of mercy. Oh, they were happy to get the benefits of Jesus. Sometimes we're like that too, right? I don't want to obey you, Jesus, but give me your favor. Give me stuff. Give me healing. That was the crowds. But they would not repent and follow Jesus. They would not have him as their Lord and King. And so now that they've rejected Jesus, God is closing the door of opportunity on them. Friends, this is an important truth that we must grasp. Even though the Bible tells us that God is supremely sovereign over all matters of spiritual understanding and salvation, that truth of divine sovereignty does not obliterate human responsibility. The words and works of Jesus made the crowds without excuse, and because of their rejection of Jesus, God now confirms them in judgment. This is what I want to say to you today about this point. Do not be deceived. The door of opportunity does not remain open forever. If you are aware of the truth of the gospel, if you know that Jesus is truly God and truly man, that he has died for your sins and risen from the dead, do not delay. Cast yourself upon his mercy. Repent and follow Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Do not presume upon the, the grace of God that that opportunity will be there tomorrow. Because it might not be. And I'm not just talking about you might die. I'm saying the Spirit might not draw you tomorrow. Hebrews 12, 17 says, When Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What a horrible place to be. God forbid that any of us should find ourselves in that place. But for these obstinate crowds, that time has come. They have rejected Jesus, and now they are rejected by Jesus. So Jesus obscures his message to the crowds in these parables so that they will no longer be able to understand what Jesus is saying to them. And friends, that is a terrible judgment to be cut off from a true understanding of God's word, the word that saves. It is a judgment that ensures that among those who did not have the truth, indeed, even what they had will be taken away. But while the parables fulfill this fearsome function of judgment on the impenitent, they fulfill a different purpose for Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples are different than the crowds because God has given them insight. And what God has let them understand and participate in was amazing. For generations, Israelites had read the prophets. They had anticipated the birth of Messiah. They had awaited the coming of the kingdom when the, the good rule of God would collide with this evil world and subjugate it. Many people eagerly anticipated that time, but they didn't live to see it. But Jesus says to the disciples, you have gotten to see it. You have lived to this moment. And yet, what the disciples were experiencing was very different than what previous generations of Israelites would have expected when God's kingdom came to the earth. These previous generations would have expected that when Messiah came, in an instant, the old rebellious order would fall. Rome would be destroyed. And yet when the king actually came, that isn't what happened. History as humanity knew it didn't end. All things were not immediately made right. The kingdom came first not in a blaze of supernatural conquest, but in a small movement in a backwater community led by a carpenter and his close friends. And I think that's what Jesus means in verse 11 when he speaks of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the insights that the disciples had received from God. This word secret is the word that's often translated mystery in the New Testament. It speaks of something that used to be concealed but which has now been revealed. And what is it that has now been revealed to the disciples about the kingdom that former generations would not have known? I think the answer must be that the kingdom would not come in its fullness all at once. Yes, one day the kingdom will come in its totality, and Christ will reign and subjugate this evil world. But that will be at his second coming. In his first coming, the kingdom dawned in the humble person and work of Jesus. Now, exactly how all of that was going to work out, surely the disciples do not yet understand. After all, Jesus has not yet told them that he's got to die and rise from the dead. But God allowed the disciples at this point to perceive that in some way, the kingdom was bound up with the person of Jesus. And that was something that earlier generations could not have comprehended. And that was a truth that the crowds would not accept. But that was what God had let the disciples grasp. And this is the truth that throughout the rest of chapter 13, Jesus is going to reinforce to them. The kingdom has begun. It is going to grow and develop across time. And as it expands, it's going to look very different than what everybody expected. And yet in the end, it will be comprehensive and glorious. Sin will be destroyed and righteousness will be established. So Jesus teaches in parables to teach those things to his disciples too. So we see why Jesus taught in parables. To confirm the insight that the disciples had received from God and to impart more truth to them. And to confirm judgment on the unbelieving crowds by obscuring the truth from them. But we come now to our last point. And here we ask, what does this first parable of Jesus mean? Generally, and what does it mean for us? Jesus has explained why he's teaching in parables, but he's got more to say to the disciples. Verse 18, he says, Here then, the parable of the sower. And now Jesus straightforwardly explains this first parable to his disciples. Now again, let's remember the elements of the parable. We've got a sower who is sowing seed. And we've got four types of soil that the seed falls on. The road, where the birds eat it. 
the shallow ground where it cannot take root and is scorched by the sun, the thorn bushes where it is choked of its nutrients, and finally in the good soil where it produces a large crop. What's it mean? Here's what Jesus says, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Notice two things here. First, while Jesus does not identify the sower, he does identify the seed. And Jesus tells us that the seed in this parable represents the word of the kingdom. What's that? Well, this precise phrase is not found elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. But a similar phrase is found on three occasions, the gospel of the kingdom, in chapter 4, in chapter 9, and in chapter 24. What is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, gospel means good news. So this is good news about the kingdom of God. Chapters 4 and 9, we're told that Jesus preached this good news. In chapter 24, we're told that Jesus' disciples will preach this good news. And what is this good news? Well, it's the same message we've seen proclaimed from the very beginning of this book, which was first proclaimed by John the Baptist in chapter 3, and then by Jesus in chapter 4, and then Jesus told his disciples to preach it in chapter 10. And the message is this, repent, for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom has drawn near because God's messianic king has arrived. Turn to him in faith and be saved. The seed is that gospel. Jesus has come and everyone everywhere must turn to him in repentant faith to be saved. And whoever proclaims the gospel is sowing this seed. But as the seed is sown, as people proclaim the gospel, the message about Jesus is going to be received differently by different groups of people. And that's the big idea in this parable. And you know, it's not hard to see why Jesus tells this parable at this point in his ministry. Because over the previous two chapters of this book, despite everything Jesus has done, he has just been rejected by a great number of people. And we might wonder if Jesus has demonstrated so clearly who he is, why is he being rejected? And this parable explains, because not everybody responds to the truth of the gospel in the same way. And that's the second thing I want you to see here, Jesus' explanation of this first soil. The pathway where the seed is eaten by the birds, what does this represent? Jesus says this is like someone who hears the gospel but doesn't really understand it. They don't see the value of the message. They don't see that they have a need for a savior. They don't see any point in repenting. Jesus explains, this happens because of the work of Satan. In the parable, Satan's represented by the birds. And that's because in the ancient Near East, birds were often seen as symbols of evil. And even the sky was associated with evil. Remember in Ephesians 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And so the birds represent Satan. And what happens is, some people hear the gospel, but they're blinded to its significance. And the reason for that is that Satan has blinded them. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan has dominion over this world, and he's able to work directly and indirectly through the culture to spiritually blind people to the truth of the gospel. 
And so people who are under Satan's sway may encounter the gospel and not perceive any value in it. They quickly dismiss what they have heard and go on with their lives of rebellion against God, continuing down the broad road that leads to destruction. We've seen folks like this in Matthew's gospel. The Pharisees who have hardened their hearts to Jesus. The crowds who will not repent. And maybe many of us here today know people who are in the same condition, who have heard the gospel again and again, but who have no interest. They see no value. And that's because they're in this same boat. Perhaps some of us who are here today are in the same situation. Maybe we're here at church because someone dragged us here against our will. Or we feel pressured to be here, but we really don't get it. We don't see why any of this matters. We don't believe that Jesus is God who became a man, or that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath. We don't really care that Jesus died for our sin. We don't really believe that he is risen. And if that's where you're at today, I want you to know your indifference is a result of Satan's work in your life. And you should cry out to God and ask him to reveal the truth and glory of the gospel to you. And believers, we should pray right now for people who might be here, who are hearing the gospel yet once more and who still do not perceive. This is one reason people reject the gospel. Satan blinds them. That's the first soil. Second, verse 20, Jesus says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is a more complex group. Here are people that don't immediately brush off the gospel. In fact, we're told they receive it immediately with joy. There's an exuberance to these folks. But it remains superficial. It never really takes root in their lives. They're not transformed by the gospel. And that is seen most clearly in the defining feature of this group, which is that their commitment to Christ is temporary. It doesn't endure. Jesus has promised throughout this book again and again that following him leads to great trouble and opposition. It's one of the big themes of Matthew 10, Jesus' second sermon. He says, persecution is going to come. He says, verse 22 of Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. To follow Jesus is to encounter hardship, the hardship of opposition, the hardship of battling sin in our lives. But Jesus says there are people who initially seem exuberant about the gospel, and yet as soon as they encounter these difficulties, they fall away. And they fall away immediately. As quickly as they were in, they're out. What should we make of this group? The lesson of this second group is a lesson that many American evangelicals have failed to learn. We often make a big deal about people who claim to have recently converted and who seem to have this great deal of exuberance. And this is especially true about young people in churches. Back when I was in a youth group and then after I entered ministry, again and again I have seen young people who would say that they had been saved, who would seem awfully energetic about the things of God for a season. And these young people were often held up as great examples of true faith. And yet over time, when these kids learned that belonging to Jesus wasn't going to make them popular, that standing up for the gospel would put them at odds with the world, or when they saw that belonging to Jesus meant that they had to live lives of holiness and battle sins that they wanted to indulge in, they walked away. This is common. 
And it's not only common among the young. It happens often among older believers too. There was a very respected Bible teacher in this city for many years who two years ago decided he was going to leave his wife and go marry a man. This stuff happens among all people who profess to be Christians. We see it all over the place. Many of us have seen it happen in our churches. Tragically, many of us have seen it happen in our homes. And as we ponder what happened in these cases, we're often blinded by our emotional desires. Because we desperately want these people who have fallen away to have truly been saved. And so we focus our attention on that initial burst of enthusiasm so long ago, and we say, well, that's the proof positive that they belong to Jesus. But hear me on this. What Jesus tells us here is that the true mark of authenticity is not a short burst of fervor. Rather, it is the long haul of persevering commitment that does not fall away when difficulty and opposition comes. After all, Jesus says in his sermon about persecution in Matthew 10.22 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or Matthew 10.32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Many people these days really try to avoid this conclusion that the second group are lost. They latch onto the phrase that the second soil receives the seed. And they say, well, see, that's that's saving faith. I cannot agree with that. First, because the Bible tells us that quite often there's something that looks like saving faith, but which isn't. If you have questions about that, go read about Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8, who believed and was baptized, and yet Peter says, you'd better repent or you're going to perish. Or again, in Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not every profession is true. Second, the Bible gives us zero reasons to believe that someone who renounces the faith has been saved, but it gives us many explicit statements that tell us that someone who has denied Christ is not saved. I'll just quote one verse here for the sake of time. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Third, Jesus' statements in chapter 10 about denying him are directly on point here. And fourth, I would say the interpretation that this second group have actually been converted runs against the logic of the parable, in which the seed sowed in the first three soils all meets a bad end. So for those reasons, I do not think this second group consists of saved people. It consists of people that were not truly converted, which is evidenced by the fact that they fell away at the first sign of difficulty. The people in the second group still need to respond to the gospel. They still need to trust in Jesus. Third, Jesus says, verse 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here's another group that at first seems to have a positive response to the gospel, and yet who ultimately shows themselves not to be rightly related to God. This is the seed sown among the thorn bushes. The thorns outcompete the seed for nutrients and kill it. 
And Jesus says, this is like people whose interest in the gospel winds up being outcompeted and starved because of other things in their lives. Jesus says the cares of the world, the anxieties and demands of our everyday lives, or the deceitfulness of riches. You know, money creates exciting opportunities and new temptations to sin. And so many people start saying, well, I'm going to devote my life to chasing money. I don't care about Jesus. And we recently heard a sermon on 1 Timothy 6. Listen to these words. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, the desire to be rich, will dominate your life and lead you away from Christ. That is what happens to many of the people in this third group. And the problem is this. Jesus is a Lord who demands to take precedence over everything else in our lives. Following him is costly. And if we are to belong to Jesus, he's got to have the first place. Our lives cannot be dominated only by the materialist concerns of this world. In fact, Jesus said that very explicitly earlier in this book. Chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says you can't serve him and money. It's either or. You've got to choose. We'll see a sad picture of this in chapter 19. As the rich young ruler is offered an opportunity to follow Jesus, and instead he says, I'd rather chase money, and he turns away from Christ. Don't be like that. In the same way Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The worries of this life want to control us and predominate our thinking. But Jesus says, no, put first priority on the kingdom. Live to please Jesus first and foremost and pursue his righteousness. He saw a sad picture back in chapter 8 of someone that wanted to choose differently. He said to Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. The demands of his family seemed more real and worthy of his time than following Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus matters more than anything else in our lives. He's got to take first position. But we must understand that many, many people who initially seem open to the gospel over time by their slavish devotion to materialism show that they never really understood who Jesus was and they never really understood what it meant to follow him. Their lives have no place for the gospel. And people who live like that have made the decision of the rich young ruler. They have turned away from the invitation of Christ to serve mammon. And they show themselves to be lost. And that is the third soil. But now we come to the last soil, which encountered the seed and produced much fruit. Verse 23, Jesus says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. And yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. This alone is the good outcome. In all the other scenarios, the seed dies a miserable death. Here alone does the seed bring forth much fruit. Here alone does it fulfill the intention of the sower who sowed it. And what characterizes this fruitful soil? 
Not only does this person hear the gospel, Jesus says, he also understands it. God has enabled him to perceive its reality and power, to see its glory so he's no longer blinded by Satan, to, to, to see that the gospel should have a central position in their heart that takes root in them. They're transformed by it and they prize Jesus and his kingdom as worth suffering for. They recognize the primacy of Jesus over everything else in their lives. Friends, these are the people that understand what it means that God's kingdom has begun to dawn in this world and that we must flee for refuge to Jesus the King. These people are the ones who have been truly converted. And we see the reality of their spiritual condition by where their lives lead. This is very important, friends. So often we are interested only in the early days of someone's faith. But what we're going to see especially in Jesus' second parable that we'll look at next week, is that authenticity is most clearly discernible at the end of someone's walk, not at the beginning of it. The true wheat is most distinguishable from the imposter only when it's fully grown up. And we see that same idea in this parable. We know that something's profoundly wrong with the second soil because the people in the group fall away. We know something is wrong with the third soil because the people in that group choke out the gospel from their lives. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But we know something is right with the fourth soil because it winds up bearing much fruit. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. And this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus says the right response to him will be marked by fruitfulness. He said the same thing in chapter 7. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Your spiritual condition determines what your life will produce. Spiritual health will produce fruitfulness, and spiritual death will beget ruin. Jesus warns in Matthew 7, 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But the person who responds rightly to the gospel will bear fruit. I want you to notice something else here. Although the good soil bears fruit, it does not do so always in equal measure. Just as there were three bad soils and three bad outcomes in this parable, we also find three good outcomes. Some believers bear a lot of fruit, a 30 times increase. Some bear a ton of fruit, a 60 times increase. Some bear a gigantic amount of fruit, a 100 times increase. And there's no sense here that only the 100-fold are really doing a good job for God and those 30-fold people better step it up. No, all of these are great outcomes. What reveals the quality of the good soil is not a particular quantity of fruit, but rather it's the presence of any fruit. That's what shows that these people have truly taken hold of the seed. They bear the fruit of obedience to God, the, the fruit of good works that cause God to be glorified before others. And that is the fourth soil. And that's what this parable means generally. Now, I want to ask briefly here to conclude, what should we take from this today? I want us to, to learn three things. First, we need to listen to this parable to gain insight. Jesus told this parable to explain to the disciples why people respond to the gospel differently. And he's given them this rubric to help them be able to recognize the difference between a true and a false response to the gospel. Friends, we need to learn these same insights. The hallmark of an authentic conversion is not simply that someone has professed faith. 
nor is it that they have an initial exuberance. Rather, it's that they don't fall away when hard times come. They don't ignore the demands of Christ because they've squeezed the gospel out of their life so they can be more materialistic. No, the hallmark of true faith is endurance. It is giving priority to Jesus above all else. And ultimately, it's bearing the fruit of a life of faith and obedience. Do not be deceived about this. I implore you. If there are people in our lives who resemble the second and third soils, do not just say, well, I'm sure they're saved, as a pretext to avoid having a hard conversation with them about the gospel. Do not imagine that they are saved simply because you wish that to be the case with all of your heart. Believe what Jesus has said in this parable and evangelize them. They need it. Second, I think this parable urges us to sow the seed of the gospel and to do so liberally. I think many of us are pessimistic about the impact we can have for Christ. You can say, well, I'm never going to bear any real fruit. Who would want to listen to me? You know, if I tell the gospel, nobody's going to believe me. And so we don't even try. But you know what? A lot of the seed that the sower sowed was wasted. But the few areas where it took produced a huge return on his investment. Friends, it only takes one receptive hearer to produce a great bounty for the Lord and a great impact for the kingdom. So be like the sower and sow the gospel liberally because you never know where you're going to find some good ground. But third, I think this parable requires us to examine ourselves. Do you love and treasure Jesus? When you encounter hardship, do you think, well, maybe it's time for me to cut and run? Or do you endure? If you endure, praise God. Right? Your endurance is not a product of, of our own excellence. It's, it's a gift from God that he who has begun a good work in us is bringing us to completion in the day of Christ. But friends, let us be aware of the dangers Jesus speaks about in this passage. The trap of cutting and running when we face opposition. The trap of the anxieties of this world. The trap of the deceitfulness of riches. Friends, do not be taken in by these snares. Do not shipwreck your faith and your life. Yes, the road is narrow and hard that leads to life, and few there be that find it. But Hebrews 12 says to us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Friends, there is joy set before us. Let us run with endurance. As Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear.